Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the History of the Batman with London, brought to you by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles in Hollywood, California. This is where we relive the defining moments of one of the most iconic figures of art and literature, the Batman. My name is Mason Booker, and as always, I am joined by London from the shadows. Maybe he'll say something, maybe he won't, we'd never know. We're joined by Shadow Adam. History of the Batman is produced and engineered by me, Mason Booker. Adam Silverstein is still MIA, but I'm filling in for him, and it's my honor. London, how are you? I am very excited, Mason. I am <laughs> I am ecstatic. I can't wait. I don't even want to talk about all the other stuff that's going on at Meltdown, even though there's tons of comedy shows and everything, and <laughs> comics and books and all the other shows that I produce. But whatever. I don't want to talk about it because I'm so excited about our guest. Comic legend. Are you ready? Yes. All right. <laughs> London. Who do we have going on over here? I'm super excited. <laughs> I'm excited too. It's an amazing guest. I'm a huge fan. And he has been part of DC Comics, the company, the publication, for over 40 years. He has contributed to so many different roles within the publication. He's been an editor for several titles, including Batman books. He has been the vice president and the president of DC Comics, and he's been a consultant for DC Entertainment and has written several books and has introduced many characters into DC Comics, and he is Paul Levitz. Hi, Paul. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Levitz. Hi, Mason. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. For History of the Batman, it is important to discuss the different eras and evolutions and everything about Batman and how he has become this amazing character. And you have been a part of DC Comics for decades you have seen this change this evolution firsthand and so we are so happy to have you and to discuss just that journey that you've gone through he's essentially living history of batman right and so you're perfect for it. outstanding <laughs> it definitely so you became well you were part of dc uh, starting doing freelance writing in in 1972 for dc comics how did you get into becoming part of dc becoming a freelance writer just the beginning how did that happen i started with a friend of mine, one of the early fanzines about comics, and it was really sort of a TV guide for the field in the days when publishers didn't routinely announce when next issues were coming out. fair proportion of the material that was being published was being published even without credits because the professionals themselves were glad to see something that told them when their work was getting published and that acknowledged their credits. I developed pretty good relationships with most of the people in the field. In those days, we're talking the early 1970s, something like 95% of the very small group of people who were making comics in America were doing it in the New York metro area. So it was relatively easy to build those relationships. And from that, I got invited to do some freelance writing, text pages and things for DC. And then I got offered a position to fill in as an assistant editor to Joe Orlando, one of the legendary editors of the business, for the summer while his assistant took a summer vacation. His assistant never came back. I, I didn't <laughs> murder him. He went on to live a happy life, <laughs> uh, wrote many comics and did many other interesting things along the way. And I just never left. Wow, that's amazing. That, and that must have been an amazing opportunity. I bet you were ecstatic. It's a pretty cool thing to start a job on the masthead of something like DC Comics the day you finish high school. Right. Uh -huh. 
Right. And I'm sure that I know there are a lot of listeners out there who are trying to get into comic book writing and be illustrators. So this, I'm sure, or your story is very it's it's enlightening. Um, I know perhaps today it might be a little bit more difficult to get into writing for DC, but um, there's a lot of aspiring writers. And of course, we always say just go for it. And we always ask the guests that we have if you have any advice for people who are trying to get into that industry since you've been a part of DC Comics and the comic industry for many decades. Um, do you, I mean, we can just ask, do you have any advice or from your experience? Well, I mean, the, fir- the first thing is it may be harder to get into DC. Right. Not sure that that's actually true, but it's much easier to get into comics because there are many, many more ways into it. When I started at DC, there were about a half dozen publishers in America putting out comics and in a really energetic week, there might've been 30 or 40 comics published. Uh, One of my retailer friends uh, this spring had a week where he brought in 700 new comics titles. Wow. (laughs) Um, And, I mean, that was an exceptional week for whatever set of reasons, but it's a much more fertile field than it was before. Um, now, a lot of those 700 titles had very small circulation and I'm sure didn't have enough money attached to them to make it a very lucrative thing for the creative people who were working on it. But the process of getting published is much more open now and much more open to a much wider range of themes, topics, styles than it was in the early 1970s when there were only three or four different flavors of comics being produced in America. Uh, The best advice I have for anyone who wants to be in the field, starting thinking about writers first, because that's the, the part of the field I've done my creative work in, If you want to be a writer, don't think of yourself as a comic book writer. Think of yourself as a writer who happens to write comics, among other things, and write every day and try to write anything you can. Try to get whatever you can published, whether it's on the web, self-published through an e-book, or professionally published. Get work out there. Start getting reaction to it. Develop your skills. Um... Gladwell popularized the idea of the 10,000 hours that most sets of skills that people need to learn, whether it's flying a plane or doing surgery um, or writing. Human beings seem to need something like 10,000 hours of practice to get anything down as well as they can. And I don't know that that's true for writing, and it's different for every person probably, but there's certainly a lot of effort you need to put in to get yourself to where you possibly can be. The reason I say don't think of yourself primarily as a comic book writer specifically is very few of us make a living just writing comics for an entire lifetime. I certainly didn't. I had 20 years in between where I did almost all executive work and very, very little writing. And now I spend about half my time writing and about half my time teaching. Most of my friends who have had successful lifetimes as writers didn't just write comics. At some point they wrote animation, they wrote live TV drama, uh, they wrote training manuals, they wrote children's books. And some of that was by choice and some of it was out of necessity. But writing is a difficult thing to make a living at. Anything in the creative arts in this country is a difficult thing to make a living at for a full lifetime. That's true. And you should go in with as much flexibility as you can so that you can jump from one of these things to another as as you may need to. And you really don't know where your path may lead. Yes, I think especially being here in L.A., that's especially true because I know 
almost everyone who's creative that I know is wears many hats. It's not you're not just one right. way to go. It's it's definitely so. Yes, words of words of wisdom. Definitely. Uh, you mentioned that during the seventies with comics, there were only a few flavors or a few types of comics. I wanted to actually talk to you about your time as editor in DC um, Comics during the the mid 70s because um, in 1975 there was the DC explosion where there were almost 60 new titles and then by 78 most of those titles were gone and became the DC implosion as it's called uh, what, yeah not, uh, not exactly the right numbers and the right dates though, <laughs> but I mean it there was there was a tremendous search from the late sixties into the mid seventies mm-hmm. to find new things that might work, but still really within a very limited range of styles and It was a search for new characters, but it wasn't a search for dramatic new territory yet. We hadn't gotten to the point where the distribution of the field really made that possible. Most of the distribution in those years was on newsstands, places like 7-Elevens. Comics were perceived to be a form in America that really were only for kids. When you discovered the opposite sex or discovered sports um, or whatever your, your passions were going to be, uh, you were supposed to put put it aside. So this winter of 77 into 78 was a particularly bad one in America. And that had a very negative effect on newsstand sales of a lot of kinds of magazines. But comics as something that was at the bottom of the newsstand business was particularly badly hit. And DC was very badly hit. And what became known as the DC implosion was a cancellation of a lot of titles at that point, consolidation. DC went down at that point to, if memory serves me, we we went down to 23 titles a month. Um, Very uncomfortable period. But the comic shops that were beginning to open up in those years became a really meaningful form of distribution by the early 80s, and that began to create a much wider opportunity to produce material that was more sophisticated, better produced, um, and really give the writers and artists more of a chance to flourish and to sell work based on their reputations. That was part of what drove the evolution of royalty plans, better treatment contractually for writers and artists in the field, um, and also opened up the industry to the growth of what became the quote-unquote independence, Um, but basically it was just a whole other tranche of new publishers coming in who want to try new things, most of which didn't work, most of which didn't survive, but a few of them stuck it out, and then other new ones came in, and uh, eventually more new flavors began to be offered. That's fascinating. But real quick, we're going to take a minute to talk about Loot Crate. London, you know about Loot Crate. Yes, I do. Their subscription box is awesome. You get a whole bunch of crazy stuff. I got socks, like Harry Potter socks, and you sometimes get exclusive Funkos, and I love Funkos, and they just have amazing geeky stuff in there. Loot Crate's awesome. Yeah, it's very cool. I, I found out that each box is basically a 45 to $65 value. So for yeah. every box you get is 45 to 65 or maybe even above value of stuff inside. It's all nerd-oriented, and it's basically... Six to eight items, licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one of a kind stuff. It's it's just amazing. It's basically Comic Con in a box. It's nerd centric items. Right. Each month has a different theme and it's a good deal too. Yes, it's twenty bucks basically, twenty bucks a month, you get it. But 
for the special listeners of our show. Yes. We have a little hey, hey from Loot Crate. If you go to www.lootcrate, that's L-O-O-T crate.com forward slash H-O-T-B. Which is history of the Batman. Exactly. And you enter the promo code H-O-T-B three. That's the number three. Then you get three bucks off of any uh, first time subscription. That's insane. That's awesome. It's pretty awesome. (laughs) You're $17 for a $45 to $65 value of nerd stuff, which is just awesome. Anyway, back to the show. (laughs) That's great. Um, It's it's very interesting because reading about this particular period, it it seemed like a huge transition in creativity and style, as you mentioned, for DC and was also a transitional period, I believe, for even the Batman character in the Batman books, which you were editor of, you were editor for Batman comics for a couple of years, and also Detective Comics, which I believe was discussed that it should have been canceled during this DC implosion, but then it was, it remained at issue 481, and you started editing in 482. Um, What was the reasoning for keeping Detective Comics and transitioning to, I think, the Batman family and kind of changing the book so it would remain and the sales would go up? What was that experience like as editor for the book that was supposed to be canceled? The implosion was a very difficult time for all of the people who were involved. And a small group of us had to figure out how to condense the number of titles we had to the number of slots that the business plan called for going forward, how to try to figure out which of the writers and artists who we were contractually or morally obligated to provide work for could do which series and which characters could sustain how many titles within that mix. When we went into it, there was a monthly Batman book, a monthly detective book, uh, a monthly Brave and Bold starring Batman and whoever the heck happened to show up that day, (laughs) and a bi-monthly Batman family title that was a thicker book that was an anthology of many of the sporting characters at the time. And that was a little more than we felt we could hold coming out. There was a debate for about two minutes about whether Detective, which at the time was the weakest selling or seemingly the weakest selling of the four, should survive. And the solution was essentially to combine the kind of material we were doing in Batman Family with what we were doing in Detective. Um it seems to be the best way to juggle the seats. So does that mean Batman family was eliminated for a while and you yeah. oh, I got you. Eliminated forever, I think. I don't think we I don't think we oh. ever went back to that. No, it was only for that short period, which I enjoyed those those stories. And even with the creators you had a lot of different amazing writers and artists that were on the Batman publications like Marv Wolfman and Irv Novick and, and Jim Apero and with being editor at the time with those publications what was and um, did you have any particular favorite creators or did you work well with them was that relationship with the writing and the illustrations was was, it was so, just just so much fun I mean there were so <laughs> many good people working I mean most of the Writers who were working on the Batman books at that period were all guys I played poker with every week. So, <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> you know, Denny O'Neill, Len Wein, Marv Wolfman, Mike Barr all contributed to the Batman stories and all contributed some money to the poker till. <laughs> um, and I wasn't a frequent winner, but I was an occasional winner at the table. <laughs> Um, we had a couple of other people who I think were supporting themselves off off the poker table. Nice, pretty pretty impressive considering how low the stakes were. <laughs> um, you know, we, we were getting to play with some of the great toys creatively that exist in the world of comics. The mythology of Batman, the character, um, some wonderful artists. I was looking the other day at the cover art for Detective 500, which was 
pretty much my swan song as an editor. Did a couple <laughs> of issues after that, but that was the um, the big deal thing that wrapped up my time. And it was a unique cover because it was one of the f- rare times we did a jam cover mm. in in the old days. So What's a jam cover? all of the different artists who had oh, stories okay. in the issue contributed to a single illustration. So the original sketch was by Joe Kubert, but the final art was a combination of Kubert's drawing, Carmine Infantino, Dick Giordano, Jim Amparo, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Walt Simonson, Tom Yates, all the guys who were in the book. And that's a pretty amazing list of people on the art side. Yeah. Uh, And (laughs) was an equally unusual list of people on the writing side from... Uh, sort of at one extreme, Walter Gibson, who was the writer who created The Shadow many, many years ago, oh, wow. doing his what turned out to be his last story. Um, Gibson had written one or two Batman stories back in the 1940s, um, but it was a, a rare moment of his touching the character. And on the other end of the spectrum, it was the first time that a writer named Alan Brederick, who was a television writer that I knew who wrote a, a beautiful Batman story there. DC is about to issue a hardcover collection of Alan's handful of Batman stories because uh, they're so memorable. Oh, that's great. Uh, I think, I think that's, I don't know exactly when that's shipping, but it, uh, it's pretty close now, next couple of months. Oh, we'll, um, we'll be on the lookout. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so we really ran the, ran the gamut in that issue from, one of the grandest old men who predated the Batman to what was at the time sort of a young, fresh talent who had never had a chance to touch him before. Um, those were just enormously fun days to play as an editor. That's so cool. That is. <laughs> so you said that Detective Comics 500, that's that's the one that you really enjoyed and with all of the creators. Were there other Batman stories in Batman, Detective Comics, Brave and the Bold that were most memorable to you or working on or helping the creators with? Is there Are there stories that stick out? Or even are there stories that you look back and wonder, should I have changed one thing or or I, or I don't go back it. and reread them that that often that I <laughs> actually drive myself. Um, I'm very proud of particularly the Untold Legend of the Batman miniseries. That was the first ever miniseries done in comics that was created intended to be a miniseries. Back in the 1970s, basically the business was constructed on the idea that you were doing magazines. And magazines are intended to be ongoing things going endlessly as long as they sell well enough that you get away with them. Uh, DC had experimented a few months before with taking a three-issue story of, called World of Krypton, a backstory, obviously, out of Superman's family's life, and putting that out as a limited series for the first time. But that that was something that was originally created to appear in another magazine and was just being repurposed. That had worked okay, and this idea of a quote-unquote miniseries, the name obviously stolen from television at the time. <laughs> uh, you're talking about the period when Roots was first a big phenomenon. Um I was given the assignment to put together a Batman one and brought together Len Wein, John Byrne, and Jim Aparo to do something that kind of organized all the mythology of Batman as it existed at the time. And that was a particularly fun project. Yes, that miniseries is fantastic. (laughs) So I I definitely see why that's one of your most memorable ones. Now, we've been talking about you as an editor and maybe for listeners out there that don't know exactly what that job entails, what was a day-to-day, what was it like to be an editor? What did you do? What were your major responsibilities as an editor? Well, it's it's varied over the year. Being an editor over the years has varied at the different companies and different approaches. Back at the time I was doing it, the editor was really the 
creative center of the titles you're working on. These were all titles that were owned and controlled by the company. So the fundamental creative direction was more up to an editor than an individual creator. And your job was, in some cases, to recruit talent, in other cases, to manage the talent that was assigned to you out of sort of the pool that the company ran um, and get the best work you could out of them and get it on time and put the book out in a tone and style that you believed in and that you hoped would sell well. Did the editor come up with concepts that you then handed to the writers or did you hold open sessions where you're like, pitch me some ideas, guys, and we'll see what, what works? It really went all along the line. Um, we published, a, launched a title in that period called Men of War, and the writer who was going to come on the book, David Michelini, very talented writer, was available for the project but didn't particularly have an idea for what he wanted to do. And in that case, I developed sort of a core idea of a series called Codename Gravedigger and handed that to David who then took it in his own direction, in his own fashion, and made it into a story that probably was much better executed than I was capable of as a writer at that point. I just had more of a background in military history that had led me to the the ideas that I was pitching around. On Batman, extremely skilled group of writers, and often the plotting sessions were very, very brief. I remember particularly vividly a couple of times working with Denny, where he'd come in and we'd exchange a sentence or two and he'd go off and come back with a finished script a week or so later. Yeah. Um, there were other occasions where the writer just came and said, I don't know how to finish this. <laughs> uh, stuck on this. Uh, how do we get him out of this, boss? And you know, we'd go back and forth till we, till we solved the problem. As a writer, I put much more energy into working with the writers than I did working with the artists. I didn't have the same ability to go over anatomy or composition. I had a few things that I had learned, particularly from Joe Orlando, that could help with the younger beginning artists who I worked with from time to time. But most of the guys I was working with on the books at that point were very experienced professionals, and there wasn't going to be an awful lot that I had to offer them usefully. Where I work with the art a little bit more, part of the editor's job was to come up with the concept for covers and work with the artists developing the sketches and the, the visuals for it and write any cover copy that was needed. Cover copy was a little more common in those days than it is today. And that was always fun. You said that since you're a writer, you kind of bonded or was able to help with the different writing. I know during the time you were an editor, you wrote for several different comics, uh, particularly your run on Legion of Superheroes, of course, is is legendary. And you've written all different for different comics for Teen Titans and for a few for Justice League. Um, while you were writing during this period, what was one of your favorite stories or books to write for while you were editing? Well, the, my, my two favorite series that I worked on over the years were the Legion material and the Justice Society material. Both were things that I loved as a kid, as a reader. Uh, Legion was my favorite title growing up, and getting, getting to write that was just a great treat. You know, the rest depended on which artist was available. I mean, over time, I got to write almost all of the great DC characters, at least briefly, to be invited to do an issue of DC Comics Presents, Julie Schwartz, who was one of the most legendary editors the business ever had, asking if I had any ideas for a story. It was one of the moments when it's sort of like, oh, I guess I am a real writer now, <laughs> if, Julie's, if Julie's willing to give me work. <laughs> Amazing. I just want to pause for one second, and we'll take a break. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors so that we can hopefully keep the show going. And we're back. London, let's get back to it. You've done, like you said, you've written for 
pretty much all of the the DC characters in in one form or another. But you created or you co-created um, for Justice Society and All Star Comics. You co-created Earth Two Huntress. Uh, mm-hmm. How did that version of the character come about? Because for us Batman fans, that's <laughs> the and especially for a lot of listeners and followers, they love the idea of a Batman and Catwoman relationship. So the fact that that came about. I mean, how how did that character happen? Well, the idea of a, a real Batman-Catwoman relationship is something that we developed in the Batman books really for the first time in the period when I was editing the title. Prior to that, Catwoman was always a very sexy character mm-hmm. um, and sort of flirtatious, but flirtatious in the same way that Poison Ivy was through the history of the books or kind of the the spirit villains even going back to Will Eisner's work, just sort of bad girls who would show up and tease the hero or tempt the hero. We started playing with the idea that they, the Catwoman was a morally ambiguous character who had a good dimension to her that at least Batman could see. And it was in some ways a logical extrapolation of that to develop the Huntress for Earth 2 where things had progressed further. Uh, the idea had been suggested of, at first about developing a new Batgirl for Earth for the Earth 2 book. I think that came from Tony Collin, who was one of the production artists and colorists for DC at the time. And then Joe Staten and Bob Layton, who were drawing the book, and I sort of shouldered the ideas around, <laughs> and it turned into The Huntress. And if I can ask, why Catwoman and not, say, Talia, the daughter of Grace al Ghul, <laughs> who is... You know, in many ways, a perfect match for Batman. Uh, is she? I don't know about Ooh. that. <laughs> um, you know, it, part of it is that Earth 2, of course, was the classic mythology. And we didn't, at, at least at that point, there wasn't an Earth 2 Ross al Ghul. They may have gotten around to adding one in the years since, but they hadn't by that point. I think there's, at least for me, maybe it's a function of the stories I read as I was growing up. Maybe it's a function of the the level of imagination of the Catwoman character who sort of had her own distinct, if not superpowers, at least supersized personality that made it an interesting combination. Talia, from her introduction, was a great character in the, the, the temptation to pull Batman to the, to the dark side, as it were. But she was, in the early incarnations, not particularly strong or powerful, she was just right. a really seductive gal. Yeah, she was kind of um, under her dad's thumb. Yeah. Pretty much. And there had only been a handful of stories featuring her by the time we're talking about, you know, you're you're back in nineteen seven we introduced Huntress in nineteen seventy seven, I think. Yes. Nineteen seventy eight. <laughs> and Denny's original arc featuring Russell Ghoul and Talia had appeared. But I don't even know if there were any sequels that we had done by that time. Um, maybe one. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas Catwoman had almost a 40-year history as part of the Batman mythology. Right. So, so true. <laughs> 40 years of flirting, and not surprising if you get a kid out of the deal. Yeah, I'll, I'll right. It, it, it makes sense that they would somehow end up together in, in some way. <laughs> And the hunter sees a great story anyway. Right, exactly. Like I said, that relationship, that dynamic is a fan favorite from from what I've seen. So the Earth 2 Huntress, just the idea of that character, that character itself is is interesting just just by itself. I had a lot of fun playing with her and Power Girl because in in a lot of ways, the buddy relationship there seemed more realistic Mm -hmm. than the classic Superman and Batman relationship. Power Girl may have had the same powers, but she was a more ground-level character. Being an impetuous character, as Jerry had originally created her and as I wrote her, she played well off sort of the more level-headed Huntress who had to figure out what she had to do next because she wasn't invulnerable. She wasn't awesomely powerful. So she had to have a real battle plan for whatever she was doing, and that made the two a really nice combination. Part of the problem with doing World's Finest stories, which I've done a handful of in the course of my career, uh, with Superman and Batman, is there are some things Batman's great at that Superman isn't, but Superman's not stupid. So it has to be a really complex mystery or a complex puzzle 
for Batman to have something unique to offer that Superman couldn't figure out how to deal with himself. Right. Um, whereas, whereas with Power Girl and the Huntress, there was pretty obvious complementary skills going on. <laughs> so while you were editor and you were writing for several books, was it difficult to, did, did being an editor get in the way of your writing? Did you think that having both responsibilities helped your writing? Or what was what was it like well, doing kind of both? The, the, the reason I was doing both, and most of the people in the field were doing both, comics followed a tradition that went back to the pulp magazines in the 1930s. And the tradition basically started when an editor went to hire someone for a magazine staff job as an editor, said, look, we want to hire you to be the editor of, we'll call it Doc Savage, though this is not really an accurate example. <laughs> but I can't afford to pay you enough to live on. I can pay the wages of those days. I can, I can pay you five bucks a week. I know you need 10 bucks to live. But you can write a story for me for my shadow magazine every week for five bucks. And between the five bucks you make as a writer and the five bucks you make as an editor, you'll be able to make a decent living. By the way, I don't get paid so well either, so I'm going to sell you a story for Doc Savage every week for five bucks so that I can make a decent living too. So for the most part, anybody who was working a staff job in comics was doing some kind of freelance on the side. Production guys were doing paste-up or coloring or lettering. The writers were writing. The guys who had art talent were doing at least some artwork, maybe covers, maybe an occasional fill-in story. But there was always a second way to make a living, and that was your Saturday-Sunday job. I think being a writer helped my editing, certainly. Being an editor helped my writing creatively. There was a lot to do. And then when I moved over to the business side in uh, end of 80, beginning of 81, I think it helped people in the creative community understand that I had a sensitivity to what they were doing and how their lives were organized and what were reasonable deals because I did that kind of work. When I put the writing aside in 89 because I had a couple of young kids and I really wanted the Saturdays and Sundays to be on the soccer field or take my daughter to dance class and really enjoy, enjoy their, their kitty years. At least there was a memory of, Oh yeah. He, you know, he used to be a writer, didn't he? He actually <laughs> knows, he knows something about what, what he's talking about when he's getting in the middle of these discussions. <laughs> well, you were writing since the 70s and 80s, and if we jump forward, you went from editor to the major title of vice president and then executive vice president, and then eventually in 2003, you became president of DC Comics. How, I mean, how did that happen? What was that transition like from becoming editor to those titles? And did you want to change your title as editor? Did you want to leave? Or what was... I mean, comics were creatively a pretty static business in 1980. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't see myself remaining doing this, doing the same trick for the next 40 years of my life. Um, editing Batman was about as, as far up the food chain as an editor as you could get. <laughs> um, there wasn't, wasn't too much further to go. There were a lot of things that we wanted to do better as a business and we felt were opportunities. It was a real transitional moment for the company. Jeanette Kahn was the publisher at that time, about to become the president of the company. And we had an agenda of trying to encourage the growth of the comic shops, trying to figure out how to take advantage of this older, more passionate audience that we were attracting, work with creators to find ways to make the business better for them. And it was a cool set of possibilities. The parent company... Warner Communications in those years um, didn't have a great passion for comics, so it wasn't like they were going outside to hunt for expensive executive talent. Oh, we got a kid here. He knows something about business. He took some courses in school. He's been working here a bunch of years. Um, he really cares about this stuff. I guess he's bright. He, he isn't going to cost much. Give him a chance. So I got the opportunity at a ridiculously young age to be basically the chief operating officer of DC 
the chief business person, uh, starting in 81. And one way or another, between that job under four or five different titles, um, and then the batch of years at the end of it as president and publisher, for almost three decades, um, I was either one of the two people running the company or the person running the company, and can't get can't get a much better better gig than that in comics. Certainly, nothing that I'm capable of qualified me for any better gig than that. No, that was that was pretty amazing. <laughs> Um, while you had these titles, you were still, I mean, I would assume that would take away from you writing comics. I know you went back to the the Justice Society publication kind of in the mid-2000s, but it seems like with all of the different books that you were writing on and the different characters, was out of all of these titles, what was... I know it's more fulfilling to be head of the company and and help with all of the creative changes, but did you did you miss writing comics? Just the simple writing the comics sure. that you enjoyed, and that, sure, uh, you know you, you make choices along the way. One of the one of the choices you have as a creative person, not just in comics but in many many different fields is you can either take complete possession of what you do yourself and do it as well as you can, or you can work with and through other people. And you always have less control if you're working through other people, but you have a wider reach. So I got to play a part in the ability of DC to produce material across an enormously broad range of subjects to really change how we were doing comics. Uh, Got to be one of the people who really helped create a graphic novel industry in America. And that's all very satisfying to look and say, oh, yeah, you know, we thought, I thought this stuff was possible. Kind of crapped out on it once or twice when couldn't figure out the right way to make it work at first, but third time got lucky and figured out how to do it and then was able to build from it. And it's really, the kid really, that kid really grew up really nicely. Um, And that's enormously satisfying to look back on. I'm very proud of the body of work I was able to do in that time. Did I miss writing? Sure. I mean, once or twice during it, like that Justice Society arc where I filled in for, uh, for Jeff uh, I was a, had some excuse to say, all right, you know, somebody needs some help, or this is a unusual situation where the guys really want me to to do a little piece of work to do something. But um, the the day job was a lot of fun, and watching my kids grow was a lot of fun. Eventually, the kids grew up. I think what's great about your the roles that you took on with DC is that you are a comic book fan yourself and it I'm sure that makes it much more enjoyable than someone who maybe didn't grow up with comics or wasn't a fan or just just by itself so the fact that you were able to do that I know was very fulfilling well you know these are great jobs running the the sizable comic book companies if you didn't love comics when you got there, you would love comics by the time you left. <laughs> it's a wonderful medium. And particularly in the years when I was there, and still now, you're going through such growth and such change that as a business person, it's very exciting to be working on something where there's a certain amount of wind at your back and a certain amount of opportunity to be a creative business person, not just maintain something on a static basis. For me, the added joy was I got to work with creative people that I respected, in some cases whose work I had loved since I was a kid. Um, Got to make life better for a lot of the creative people whose work I had loved when I was a child because some of them were either still in the business or we were able to do 
royalty deals or reprint deals or one thing or another that benefited them. And that was, that was terrific to be able to build relationships with, you know, the artists, the artists I got friendly with over the years, you know, from guys like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, Kurt Swan, Jim Aparo, Nick Giordano, who became a, a close friend and colleague from many years at DC. These were all guys whose work I had grown up on. Murphy Anderson, who just passed this year, who um, would tell me stories of you know, comics in the days before I got there. The editors, guys like Julie Schwartz and Joe Orlando, who just had these incredibly storied histories with the business. Chaikin made the joke about our generation that we came in at the end of the beginning. Um, and the seat I was sitting in gave me a business excuse to build these relationships was good for the company, um, was a good investment of my time. And it also was an awful lot of fun. How can a comic fan not get excited about a job when you walk out into your assistant's office and the call sheet that you've got to return the calls. It's sort of, uh, you know, Chris Nolan called with a question and Neil Adams wants to yell at you <laughs> and three, three or four of the people who are currently working for the company are there, you know, can, you know, Karen Berger needs to come in and show you this new project that the company wants, that she wants to buy for Vertigo. Part of me took it for granted because you know, it was a job. And it had some of the aggravations that any job has, and it was work. But part of me, because I was a comic fan, I think always continued to appreciate, yes, 12-year-old me showed up and saw that that's what I get to do all day. Uh, he'd tell you to shut up and stop bitching about the fact that you've got to finish that budget report. <laughs> right. Well, I can definitely see why you stayed with DC as as long as you have and even when you stepped down as president and became publisher to and editor and you went with the new DC Entertainment at the time so what was when DC Entertainment began what was that transition like and what did DC Entertainment mean for DC Comics when it when you became the consultant for it you know, I, th I think it's up to them to speak of what it became for it. Uh, it was time for a new group of people to take the reins. Diane Nelson was someone I had known, liked, and worked with for a number of years, so it was nice to be able to hand off to her. Dan DiDio and Jim Lee are both guys who had worked for me. Jeff Johns, a writer who I had worked relatively closely with on a couple of different projects for the company. So it was nice to see all of those people who I thought cared about what they did um, stepping in and the parole board had met and it was, you know, time for me to do something else. Um, you know, they had a bunch of plans in mind for what they wanted to do, moving, moving the company to California, uh, closer integration with the movie and TV stuff. Um, and that's fine. They, it was their, their time to take their try at stuff. And uh, I got the freedom to do other things. You know, I, my, the peculiarity of my life has left doors open for me that most people don't have available to them. At this point in life, I can pick and choose what I feel like doing. So I get to do just the weirdest range of strange things that amuse me. I spend about half my time teaching in colleges and grad schools, despite the fact that I never finished college myself. <laughs> Um, I have to warn the students about that usually on the first day of class. Not like your other teachers. Don't try this at home. But uh, <laughs> if if I'm a little odd, that's probably the reason. Um, so that's also inspirational, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, don't try it at home. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't the easy easiest path for most people in my generation and I think it's less so now uh, college has become much more the equivalent of what high school was 
back in the 1960s, sort of the basic certification that you can read and write and count past 10. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I've gotten to, those are just great things. I've gotten to teach at some of the top schools in America, some really interesting programs. Uh, I write all sorts of wonderful, strange things, comics for DC, done some comic stuff for Dark Horse, a little series called Brooklyn Blood in their Dark Horse Presents series. Um, got to write a piece for a scholarly journal that was doing a special issue on Mad Magazine last year. Uh, did a piece for the, the Department of Education here in New York recently. Uh, just weird things. <laughs> and it's, it's great fun. Uh, I'm on the board of Boom, one of the smaller comic companies, so periodically I'm able to give them some useful business advice from experience that I've had. Uh, still have good relationships with a lot of people in the creative community, so those friendships continue. It's It ain't bad. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing. I am particularly a fan of your 70 Years of DC Comics series, <laughs> um, The Art of Modern Mythmaking. Mythmaking. Uh, yes. The Tosh books, yeah. Yes, I am a huge fan. I have them. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. <laughs> um, Good for building muscles. Like yes, definitely. <laughs> I, I, with your, your history with DC Comics, did you feel that you – could do this comprehensive history of the publication of the company? What drove you to do this, this whole Well, we series? started the 75 Years book, the, the, the big Tashin book, um, while I was still president. And the Tashin guys and our, our internal editors had been working on it for, I don't know, about a year and a half, maybe. They hadn't found a writer to do it, but they were doing all the photo research, uh, pulling together all the interesting visuals that were going to be the essence of the book, because Tashin's a very visual publisher. And when I was moving away from the desk, Steve Corte, who was the editor managing the project for DC, said, we still haven't found anybody to actually write the words. Can you do it? And I said, yeah, I don't know. I've never <laughs> written prose at that length before. I mean, I know the subject, but it, that's a big thing. And he said, well, we don't think anybody else can. We're on a tight deadline. We don't think anybody else can do it in the, that time because they'd have to do so much research and you know so much of the stuff going in. So I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. And uh, it was great fun. Tashin makes beautiful books. Um, was really honored to win an Eisner for it. And it was a great transitional moment to sort of say, oh, yeah, the, he the, he is a writer. Because um, <laughs> yeah, I had been away from it for 20 years, and people had a vague memory that I had done it. But there also, I think was a more normal expectation of, okay, he's finished with a top job. Now there must be some nice pasture somewhere. He's going to go out and just sort of nibble on the grass. Um, and the fact that that book came out fairly shortly after I was leaving sort of said, okay, he's, he's staying active in comics. I think one of the odder things about my life is we haven't had really a lot of, people who've had executive roles in the comic book business who have stayed when they were done with their executive life. Um, we've had editors in chief you know, going, going back to Stan and Roy, um, Jim Shooter who stayed around comics after they were done with their jobs. Carmine went back to drawing comics, but we haven't had people who were primarily thought of as business folks who stayed around when they were done. Okay, you know, finish this job, I'll go do another job somewhere somewhere else. Uh, and I'm a comic book guy, so I certainly figured I would stay, stay around the field I love. Well, def your time with DC is amazing, and I think that's one of the reasons why your 
your work and everything you've contributed to DC is so special and it's just amazing the journey you've been through and all of the creators you've met and worked with and just helped shape the DC comics for the last several decades so we I mean I thank you for all that you've done and like I said I am a huge fan of your 75 years of comics that whole series that for me as an art historian that is something that I I love and like you said they're very visual I love the images and I love how it just all came together it's it's one of my favorites but yes they're kind of heavy (laughs) but it has amazing content and so I thank you for that and I'm sure I know there are listeners that know of the book that have it that should get it if or get them if they can and we just want to say thank you for coming on the show and talking to us about all of the different hats you've worn with DC Comics and giving us a little bit of insight into just how the comics come, how they become, like how they come to be and how they hit the comic shelves and the inner workings of it. And definitely the transitional period for not just DC, but for Batman and everything, all of your contributions. So thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so My much. Pleasure. <laughs> and thank you. Thank you guys. And thank the readers for letting me get away with this. <laughs> Successfully avoided being a grown up all these years, still sort of getting away with it. And uh, you guys have facilitated that. <laughs> if, I appreciate it. No, thank you. If the listeners want to follow any of your current work or are you on social media, any of that information you want to tell us so they can follow Well, the you? most recent work I've had has been the Dr. Faith series for DC. Yes. There's a trade paperback out, The Blood Price, of the first six issues, first seven issues, which just got recommended by the New York Public Library for uh, YA audiences. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and on the scholarly side, my last book was Will Eisner, Champion of the Graphic Novel for Abrams, published last year, which has some, incre- again, visually incredible. Abrams is a, another beautiful publisher, and we've got a lot of Will's great stuff. But what I tried to do in it is really give a historical context to how the graphic novel evolved in America, as well as tracing Will's unusual and wonderful career. I'm trying to put that in good context. So those are those would be things you could check out. And if your listeners go to any schools that I teach at, you know, register up and <laughs> try and try and squeeze into squeeze into my classes. Always happy to have people there who know something about comics. Haven't taught anything in Los Angeles, but uh, one of these days, maybe. Oh, if you do, I would definitely sign up <laughs> just so I could take the class. <laughs> well, thank you so much You're for coming Have on the evening, show. Have a good evening, guys. You too. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Wow. Paul Levitz, man. That guy, so inspirational. Yeah. I can't. I'm, I I'm, learned so much, actually, from so this did I. I knew. <laughs> I knew a little bit about him, but I certainly was not prepared for just the wisdom that he was dropping and right. the knowledge. And yeah. it's, just, it's so awesome to talk to a master craftsman. He was talking about the 10,000 hours. Uh, that's to reach a level of, of mastery. And he's clearly done that. And I was so impressed. Good, good interview, London. Great job. No, no, I'm, I'm so happy he came on and he was, he's a oh, part of Batman's history. And I'm saying we're blessed. Uh, yes. He's, 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 he's living <laughs> Batman history. Exactly. You want to talk about the history of Batman? This is the guy. This I mean, is if, it. You, if you could talk to Bob Kane, you'd talk to Bob Kane, but you can't. <laughs> so this is the guy. Yes. Very awesome. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so thrilled. London, how can the people get a hold of you to rave with you about our interview? Yeah, you can always email me at historyofthebatman at gmail.com. If you want to talk about this interview or other episodes, if you have questions or if you have suggestions for other shows, I'm always open to that. And you can also follow on social media. You can follow on Instagram.com slash History of the Batman. You can follow on Twitter at Twitter.com slash Hist of the Batman and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History of the Batman. But yes, if you want to contact me, talk to me about anything and everything Batman, you can always email at History of the Batman at gmail.com. 
And if you have any comic book inklings, you want to come down and check out any of the stuff that uh, Paul was talking about, come on down to Meltdown Comics. We've got it all, basically. 7522 Sunset Boulevard. We also have comedy shows. We also have numerous other podcasts that I produce. If if you're interested in any of the other shows, (laughs) Meltdown Moms, Anime Attic, Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy, Two Packs a Week... All that stuff. I produce all of it. It's amazing stuff. You should check it out, especially my show, Anime Attic. Um, which I'll be a guest on in the future. Yes, which I'm waiting point. for. Yes. Which is, which is coming. It will happen. It's going to happen. Uh, but yeah. And, uh, but otherwise, yeah, we're just we're just a bunch of nerd. We're one big nerd family down here. Come yeah. down and check us out. We're, we're pretty amazing. All right. Well, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. And London. Peace, love, and Batman. I'm going to go home and write. (laughs) It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.